0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the San Francisco Business Time Structures podcast, where we're digging into the news, policies, and trends in Bay Area real estate. I'm Kevin Trong, the multimedia producer here at the Business Times, and here with our two superstar real estate reporters, Blanca Torres and Roland Lee, back from the sunny shores of Miami. How was Miami, Roland? Beautiful.
1: Go to Wynwood.
0: I wasn't lucky enough to get any beach time this weekend. Were you, Blanca?
2: No, but I did go to (laughs) Tilden Park in Berkeley, and it was great.
0: It's beautiful out there, too. So while uh, Roland's admiring his tan, we also have been too, so that's why we've been away for a while, and apologies for that. But we're back with a jam-packed episode discussing Blanca's recent cover story on modular construction and its possible impact on Bay Area housing, our opinions on what really makes an office quote-unquote cool, and an interview with the CEO of leading commercial real estate tech company DealPath. But first, modular construction, it's a type of off-site building technique that can make buildings a lot faster and a lot cheaper than traditional method. That's especially significant in San Francisco, which holds the second highest construction cost in the world. So let's hear from Factory OS founder Rick Holliday, and a major proponent of this movement, on what he sees the benefits of modular construction are.
3: We're setting up the equivalent of an assembly line, a properly run factory, really moves a house through roughly 20 stages from the start of building the floor, which is what we do and I would call the chassis, finishing all of the interior finishes and putting the appliances in, which is the equivalent of putting the mirrors on the side of the car before it goes out the door, okay? So if you've been in a car factory, it's kind of a, it's a fun process to watch because your conveyor belt, this thing moves through it and people perform functions, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. and the cars are built right if you built cars as one-offs came over to your over to my house or your house and yeah i'll build your car here be kind of inefficient well if you imagine housing if you build 80 percent of the house in a fashion that's controlled you can bring it to a site you can do it much more efficiently in time and uh,
0: cost so now we've heard from a proponent of the technique. According to your story, Blanca, it could possibly revolutionize this region's housing market. What have you learned throughout your reporting and does it actually hold that promise?
2: Well, of course, the backdrop here is that construction costs have been rising and are very high right now to the point where a lot of developers are saying, you know, my project just won't pencil at, this, at these current costs. And so, we're at this point in the cycle where yes, rents have gone up a lot, but it's not justifying new development, even though we have plenty of demand for housing in the Bay Area. So, you know, with that in mind, if you can build something in a factory, you control costs, you control the climate, you can, you, you know, you control a lot of factors that can cause price overruns and just schedule delays with a traditional built building. So there's a lot of benefits that developers are seeing to modular. So, you know, it, it's an interesting um, possibility because it's still a very small part of the, the construction industry something like 3.2% of all building is modular. So it has a long way to go in terms of being a, a significant player. But from what developers are saying, they're really turning in that direction.
0: So, Roland, you wrote the story about the report that put San Francisco a second in the world when it comes to the construction costs. Um, What were some of the factors that led San Francisco to such a a, a high ranking?
1: So I think one of the big things is the cost of paying workers. And part of that is because there is a strong uh, union uh, kind of power base in San Francisco. So almost all the big projects are union labor. And that's been a big obstacle for Modular because, um, for the most part, uh, all the unions have been fighting against modular housing because you know, the, a lot of the work is done outside of the region, and those jobs are going to you know, just basically people who aren't San Franciscans. Uh, so, in the last year or so, they've shifted a little bit in that they aren't uh, against a homeless housing uh, plan that's a parking lot in Soma, and just recently there's another uh, again affordable housing project for. Uh, people uh, in Mission Bay that's starting construction.
0: Blanca, you've covered real estate for, for a long time, and what's kind of leading to this critical mass of people actually wanting to undertake these sorts of projects?
2: Well, I mean, it is the interest in, in cost and also delivery because you can shave off several months of the construction process. You know, right now, a 200-unit you know, apartment building could take like two years to build, and you can do that probably in less than a year, um, using modular depending on the factory you're using. So that's kind of the, the big factor right now is where can you get modules? Like there really isn't that many producers. Um, so in our story, we talk about Factory OS, which is barely gonna start production in March and it's in Vallejo. And then there's other players such as Gearden, which is out in Idaho. And um, there is another company out, out of Menlo Park called Katerra, and they're, they have a huge factory in Phoenix where they're making a lot of pre-built um, pieces of buildings. So it, it's just not a lot of manufacturers out there that are doing this, which I think is, is kind of the, the issue right now.
0: I don't think we're seeing modular construction when it comes to you know big luxury condo projects or something. So what sort of applications are developers finding for this specific sort of building technique?
2: Well. Kevin, there's actually a couple of high-rise modular buildings coming to Oakland from a developer called Rad Urban, which is also based in the East Bay. And they also started their own factory in Lathrop, which is um, kind of in the Central Valley. And they are doing steel um, construction in their factory. So Factory OS is going to build wood modules. So they're actually like... it's. Like you can imagine like a building block, like Legos that you would stack and it has a ceiling and a floor, so it's a complete unit. Whereas Rad Urban at their factory, they're building these four sided modules that are that use steel, which can be used for higher construction. Like so we're definitely going to be seeing this, um, for all kinds of housing. There's also hotels, that's a big Part of it, um, Gearden, which had been doing a lot of the multifamily projects in the Bay Area, they are quickly moving to become a mostly hotel builder because they're just seeing so much demand, and you can fit two hotel rooms in a module, and so it's a very just a very efficient way to build. Even in this
0: sort of new industry of of modular construction, there's been kind of significant flame-outs, right? There's Zeta Communities, whose founders are actually now working, I think, with factory OS. And one of the things I found interesting in your story was a quote from Patrick Kennedy, who said he didn't, even though he's kind of somewhat associated with this sort of technique, he said, I don't want to be the first person out in the field doing this because the first person gets gets shot. So did you find some fear of of trying to be innovative in this sort of sometimes restrictive uh, development environment?
2: Well, so Zeta, which started, I believe, in like 2007, um, had a factory in Sacramento, and they built a lot of the first modular housing developments that were built in the Bay Area, including 38 Harriet, which was a Patrick Kennedy. It was a small 23 units of studios in Soma, and, and that was kind of his... Foray into modular, and he took this really small site and was able to put 23 homes on it. And, and his idea was not just let's use modular, but let's do micro units, let's do really compact development, because at the time he was like, you know, it's really hard to find big development sites in the Bay Area. So how can you make small sites work for housing? So, um, but getting back to Zeta, so they w- they shut their factory in 2016. And you know what I've heard from different sources was that they were mismanaged, and so even though they had you know, projects in their pipeline, either it wasn't enough or whoever was running it just didn't manage the business very well. So that kind of left like, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, mm-hmm. and it made it seem like you know, maybe modular isn't gonna work. Um, so it did kind of cast a shadow
0: you know, we, we talked a little about sort of some of the, the union barriers to, to this sorts of, sort of construction. What, what, did, what did you see in terms of backlash and sort of pushback, both from the unions and, and outside forces?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the big conflict is that uh, the construction labor unions see this as a way of basically, you know, in their view, paying lower wages and also creating jobs outside of the communities where the homes are actually going to be built on. So they, they see it as kind of just, you know, an, an enemy and really a way that could threaten, you know, their job growth and their wage growth. So especially in San Francisco, there's been a lot of opposition uh, from all the unions, or I'd say most of the unions. And, um, you know, the only, the only few projects that have really moved forward lately um, have been affordable housing or homeless housing, where they basically, these unions have said, you know, okay, there's a social benefit here. You know, these are kind of one-off projects and you know so we will kind of step back and not oppose them. We definitely haven't seen any, you know, really massive high-rise buildings in San Francisco uh, use modular construction yet. And I think there'd be a, there there's just a lot of political challenges there.
2: The other kind of negative perceptions out there are that modular homes are cheap, that they're built like, you know, kind of the perception of like mobile homes and trailer park homes which um, you know just that's like a a very old style of prefabricated housing you know now what's built in the factory has to meet codes it's using the same materials but there is definitely this perception that if it's done in a factory it's of less quality but one of
0: the things I found kind of a little tidbit I found interesting about your story is is talking about kind of some of the roots of of where we've seen these prefabricated homes before can you talk a little bit about that and what you discovered there
2: well, you know, it kind of goes back to when you could order a house kit from Sears and it would, you know, you'd pick out your house like in a catalog and they'd send it to your home shipped from a warehouse. So there's definitely a precedent for this. And it's actually much more common in Europe and even goes back to the 1800s and other countries. So the idea of building housing in a factory is, is not new. And it's, it's kind of interesting that, that we've really have a, an industry where everything is done on site you know recall Day, um, uses this analogy where would you would you build a car at your house like individually or would you rather just get one from an assembly line like what's more efficient and it's like you could build it at your home with all the different parts but it just makes more sense to do it in a factory so why not apply that same concept to housing and you know i think there's a lot of room for innovation there
0: Our second topic is tied to the coolest office in the Bay Area feature that we're launching in the next couple weeks crowning. Well, it's in the title, but I wanted to have a discussion on what actually makes an office cool from our various perspectives. We all have different things we like, different things we dislike, different um, concerns we have. Um, so, so why don't you, we each say, you know, one thing that we think is cool in an office, one thing that we're a little bit, or think maybe is a bit overplayed.
1: So I, I wonder, cause everyone talks about collaboration, you know, open floor plan, you know, just being able to just kind of lean over and talk to your, your coworker. And we definitely have that here at the business times. Um, you know, maybe it's not totally open f- floor, but, uh, I wonder like, do you guys actually like that? Do you feel like that's, you know, a good environment?
0: Yeah, I don't know, because it has like a kind of distractive quality to everybody just kind of out in, I guess in a newsroom, it's a little bit different because it is meant to be kind of a yelly sort of uh, active environment, I don't know. But I like having my own private
1: space too, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, because we also have private rooms, you know, kind of set apart a little bit, so if if you need to make, you know, a quiet phone call or, you know, meet with someone, you can do that, but... I mean, I, I actually don't, I don't mind. I think the, the open floor plan is is fine, but I could understand how people
0: would be distracted and just kind of want to, you know,
1: maybe go back to that cubicle. <laughs>
0: it's so funny because the cubicle was, like, kind of the office space era of, you know, complete uh, sort of dredging, you know, the, the office dredge and, and kind of boring and, and being locked into prison. I, I think what you said is, is right. Um, I mean, I think great places for collaboration and great places to actually do private work in combination it makes a good office, right? You don't wanna be completely one way or, or the other.
2: Well, you know, we had, I think something like more than 70 submissions to our contest, which is pretty cool, thanks to everybody who submitted. And, um, you know, just some common themes that sort of emerged for me were a lot of bright colors. It seemed like there was a lot of that in the entries. Um, artwork and just kind of interesting architectural details like staircases or slides in the middle of the room Um, you know there's just some elements that maybe aren't cool but that I think I hear over and over again that make working more interesting which is a lot of natural light you know access to windows Um, (laughs) and and just like amenities that really make the day easier like well, the cool, among the coolest offices entries, there was a lot of coffee bars, which was pretty cool. Love a coffee bar. I mean, we have a coffee maker, but I wouldn't <laughs> call that a coffee bar. Um, and phone booths, also a, a common feature. It seems mm-hmm. like people really need private, like, soundproof. Maybe not quite soundproof, but, you know, where you can have a conversation in case your mom calls you. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, and I personally think that having rooms for, like, physical activity, maybe you don't need a full-blown gym, but, you know, there was a lot of places that had yoga rooms, also, like, quiet rooms, mom's rooms where you could, you know, pump breast milk if you need to do that or even take a nap. Um, so those, to me, are, are really spaces that actually would make a difference you know I am a bit skeptical of like ping pong tables and pool tables and like dart boards and stuff like that because to me it's like okay maybe if you need a break during the day and kind of like restart your brain um I get that but I also think like I just want to come to work and get my job done and then you know leave the office to have fun um you know, I'd rather go to a bar and drink with my coworkers. So yeah, so
0: that that brings up a a different point. The kind of because when we were looking through the coolest office um, submissions, there were a lot of actual full bars um, in 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 some of these offices, and they looked great. But but what are your kind of opinions on having you know bars or kegs or um, you things of that nature, kombucha, <laughs> in in your office? I mean, I think having alcohol four five is probably not
1: gonna help you be more productive <laughs> I mean maybe if you're uh, an, like an artist or a painter or you know
0: but. I don't know I feel like I feel like people want to like leave and drink about work I, would, I don't I don't feel like that's uh, with all due respect you know
2: I think there's a broader theme and, I, and I've seen this with some of the co-working spaces that we've covered as well as this broader theme of like making the office feel like home. You know mm-hmm, like there's mm-hmm. couches there's like bean bags where you can like lounge around and then there's like the kitchen and there's you know alcohol or um and that kind of stuff available and i i don't know i i haven't quite figured out if if you want your workplace to be like home or if you or if people want more of that distinction you know to me personally you know when i'm at work i put on like work brain you know mm-hmm, and when i'm mm-hmm. at home i kind of check out from work unless I get a lot of emails on my phone. <laughs> um, but, you know, we just wrote about this co-working space, Avant Spaces, that's opening in the marina, and, and that's, like, one of their their big themes is, like, it feels like home, but works like office is, like, their tagline. So um, maybe that works for certain people. You know, maybe it's just a personal taste or company culture type thing if you want to have, you know, a keg in the office.
0: <laughs> I mean,
2: and the benefit is that, you're not having to pay a tab. <laughs> and true. I mean, to true. split the bill, you know, with your coworkers at at the bar afterwards. So, you know, there's I, pros I and cons. I can't
0: imagine the beer is good at a, at a, an office bar, though. I mean,
1: uh, I've, I've heard WeWork's is decent, uh, but I mean, I think part of it also, if you make your office, you know, fun and provide free meals and all this cool stuff, you're actually kind of almost tricking your workers to stay longer, right? Which I think is the case with some of these tech startups, you know, yeah. if you serve dinner at, you know, I think it was Uber that they, they didn't serve dinner until 7, and then... So people waited people. until then. Exactly, and so I actually think there, they yeah. changed it to an earlier time for parents, because the parents don't want to, like, stay in, with the office until 7. So I think there is sort of this, you know, insidious kind of idea that the more appealing it is to stay in the office, the longer and hopefully harder you will work, work. But, you know, I think definitely having some sort of, you know, limit to that is, is good, too.
0: So I guess it's up to your sort of uh, opinion, whether you think that's more of a utopian sort of, you know, your workplace provides everything, or dystopian, that your workplace provides everything and you can't leave.
2: (laughs) Well, if you saw that feature in the New York Times this past weekend on WeWork, um, you know, the company is delving into a lot of other areas, like apartments and schools and preschools. So they are really looking at how to, like, you know, kind of, own the whole life experience for someone um so yeah there's the lines are definitely blurring
0: um so yeah keep an eye out for some of the coolest office picks uh coming out in the next couple weeks and we're gonna have a reader's choice to, to determine the coolest office in the bay area so please vote for that when it comes out So for our last segment, we're here with Mike Sraka, the co-founder and CEO of San Francisco-based startup DealPath, which commercial real estate companies have used to manage more than $100 billion in transaction and developments. Mike, thank you for being here. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and your company? Thank you again for having me. And a
4: quick overview of DealPath. DealPath is the leading deal management platform for commercial real estate investment teams that are evaluating and executing acquisitions, development projects, and financing deals with smart pipeline tracking, collaborative deal management, and powerful reporting, we help those teams make the best investment decisions.
2: And can you talk about the need you're trying to address in the industry and a little bit more about your background with commercial real estate?
4: Yeah, uh, let me tackle those in reverse order. Um, I had started my career working for a very large real estate private equity group and uh, for the past 10 years have been growing venture-backed software companies in the Bay Area. Um, so now building software for real estate finance makes a lot of sense and is a logical progression. I can't say that it was exactly planned that way, um, but thrilled that, that uh, those two career paths have come together. In terms of the uh, kind of pain point or challenges that DealPath is addressing, Commercial real estate deal teams haven't had specialized solutions for the work that they do. I think for the past decades, the way that professionals have worked is by cobbling together tools that were not designed for, for what they do. We see teams uh, creating checklists of tasks in a Word document or an Excel document. They might call it their due diligence checklist or capital transaction checklist or entitlements checklist or pre-construction checklist, some kind of checklist. It's usually 50, 100, 150 rows long. Each time they update a row or cell, so, they email it around to other folks on their team. Separately, they have a lot of recurring reporting. Each week, they might be creating a pipeline report, investment committee report, a lender or capital partner report. Those things live in Excel, which they are manually updating and frantically trying to keep up to date. And then separate from those tasks and reporting are all the related files because this work is so contractual. Uh, They create lots of documents and use different services to move that content around from file sharing services like Box or Dropbox or SharePoint to virtual data rooms like Interlinks or Data Site and Citrix, and then email on the phone to communicate around all of those things. Um, So end up with information splattered across all of these different services with no common naming conventions, no intelligent notifications, really hard to keep track of all the different things that their team is working on. And equally importantly, all the things that their team has done. They're spending a lot of time, money, and energy organizing information for their deals, which is almost instantly lost on email and local computers. So that's where the DealPath platform can really unlock a lot of value, is help teams build this collaborative database of every deal that they've ever looked at or worked on, create this repeatable process for how you evaluate and execute deals.
2: So I've heard kind of a similar issue with a, a lot of aspects of the real estate industry, that there just hasn't been the technology or that the industry itself is kind of reluctant to adopt new technology. Do you know or do you have any thoughts on why that is, like why real estate's kind of behind the curve on tech?
4: Yeah, um, something that we think a lot about. And first, I would say that uh, real estate has long used and benefited from software. Um, they've had uh, great uh, asset management and property accounting systems. There's been uh, listing services that we use. We are, um, However, there's been relatively less software designed specifically for commercial real estate. And part of that, I think, is really uh, kind of the composition or, or the firms that are involved in that marketplace, where commercial real estate is, is clearly very large by dollar value. In the United States, it's about $15 trillion contributed about 13% to our GDP last year. GDP in the United States was $17 trillion. Um, Big, big bucks. Uh, However, uh, it's about a million professionals across 90,000 firms uh, involved in this work, and a little division will show that the average headcount is actually quite small. It's an industry comprised of small and mid-sized businesses.
0: Um,
4: And uh, I think that historically, enterprise software has been designed for large organizations with business models that are dependent on selling thousands and tens of thousands of seats. People might think of, you know, the large services companies like CBRE and JLL. There are a few of those, uh, but not a whole lot, and particularly on the buy side, um, a team of 10, 20, 30 people can manage billions of dollars. So it is a large industry by dollar value comprised of small teams of people so
0: you're talking a little about kind of the diffuse nature of the industry um, with regards to you know individual firms and things like that. So how does your kind of all in one platform I guess fit the needs of these firms, which you know have different specialties, different things that they focus on?
4: Yeah, great question. And to be clear, we are not the all in one or or uh, able to support everyone. We are extremely focused on commercial real estate only and the buy-side principles that are deploying capital in the acquisition, development, or financing of those properties, and really supporting the transactional workflow. So uh, if you were an acquisitions or development team and you are sourcing or originating new opportunities, taking those through, underwriting, under contract, due diligence, closing, in the case of a development, uh, ongoing into design uh, entitlements, uh, pre-construction, that's kind of our world and universe. Um, so we're very focused on solving for uh, one problem, and uh, that is what these deal teams that are deploying
0: capital are, are charged with. So is there a place for you know, kind of that all-in-one solution to, to come in and, and start to you know, hit every aspect of the business? I mean, you know, modern-day enterprises have a lot of different programs that we use, um, but everybody's trying to pare down to something that fits all of their needs. You need, you see something like a Salesforce hitting all of the parts of the kind of CRM process.
4: Yeah, it's a great example where, um, you know, Salesforce, uh, we believe, is the best-in-class CRM solution um, and is uh, a platform that integrates with lots of other systems because people have different needs and they're going to need to have... Uh, great e-signature. They're going to need to have different accounting systems. Um, Salesforce is a system of record. Um, However, uh, the role of its platform and ours is to be able to ingest information from the places people have access to it and to enable customers to enrich that information and push it into other systems where they might need it. Um, We think it's impossible for a a single company or solution for everybody's uh, challenges.
2: So I was going to ask if there's maybe like a real world example you could walk us through like so I'm running my boutique investment platform or not platform sorry like a new you know a, a boutique investment company yeah, yeah. um and I want to buy a building in San Francisco how would I use your software
4: sure I'm happy to use that example but let's dial it up a little bit okay. you are the VP of acquisitions at a 10 billion dollar investment fund um, based here in San Francisco uh, you have an investment team of 10 15 20 people on any given week uh, each of those people uh, is receiving uh, emails with flyers from brokers they are uh, reviewing offer memorandums. They're doing some initial underwriting on potential opportunities. Uh, some of those uh, are interesting enough to do more work on and prepare a letter of intent and maybe negotiate a purchase and sale agreement. You're going to embark upon a due diligence process where for a period of time, maybe 30 or 45 or 60 days, you're going to try to validate uh, some of the business assumptions uh, related to that deal before going into a closing process Um, where uh, with the help of legal counsel and some other parties, you're going to validate the legal requirements to execute a a transfer of deed and title. Um, So uh, that is uh, a lot of complicated work for assets that might be worth tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and you are going to want to be very thorough in your assessment of those transactions. Uh, Your job uh, is to... Process that deal flow to value things accurately to identify and mitigate risks and in this you know Very valuable 15 trillion dollar industry with many other institutional investors making it um, Competitive and complex uh, How will you do that work effectively and quickly? We think that you'll need to utilize software be a proficient user of the best tools available
0: so maybe you can kind of comment, since you were uh, one of the first movers in the sort of CRE tech-specific space, how you've seen that um, ecosystem evolve since you, since you entered the space.
4: Yeah. Um, so we co-founded DealPath in March of 2014, about four years ago. And when we started the company, um, it felt like there was very little activity in commercial real estate software services. There was... Uh, some large incumbent services that had been around for decades, uh, but not really a, a whole lot of new solutions being created. That year, there was uh, a meetup group created, um, I think it was called CRE Tech Intersect, that did two events, one in New York and one here in San Francisco. And uh, when attending that event and not knowing what to expect, um, it had a turnout of maybe 30 or 40 people. It uh, was free to attend. It felt very hobbyist, uh, really kind of the two people in the garage. <laughs> um, and uh, Not brokers? Well, I think it was brokers that, that were moonlighting. Interestingly, brokers have really been the earliest adopters of, of software in the market. Um, and one year later, that same event, uh, when it came back to San Francisco, uh, sold out of tickets uh, that were expensive. I think that they sold like 500 of them. Um, And all of a sudden, there was dozens of institutionally backed startups, early stage companies. And one year later, we see some, uh, I'll call them early winners, companies that are getting traction that have valuations measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And another year from now, I think we'll see our first IPOs.
1: Do you think there's an agreement now that from investors that the the old system just doesn't work anymore or just... It's not good enough.
4: For institutional investment firms that are evaluating and executing deals, um, I'll use rough numbers and exaggerate a little bit, but I think that 100% of that market identifies the problem in that pipeline tracking, deal management, and reporting is very inefficient and a pain in the butt. Um, I think that approximately 50% of that market is actively looking for solutions to solve it. Um, examples being creating complex Excel macros or trying to hack tools that weren't designed for for what they do or searching for for, uh, purpose-built solutions. The other 50% of that market is what I would describe as software never. Um, And uh, I think that what I mean by that is the stereotypical C-suite of a commercial real estate investment firm um, is uh, an older guard that's been hugely successful um, and uh, I think that uh, while they may not be as active in the day-to-day work, um, they still have strong opinions uh, about how this can be done most effectively. And uh, I so, think, would that
2: be like
4: kind of paper?
2: <laughs> yeah, or informal, you know, rumor sharing and stuff like that. Is that what you're talking about? Or
4: yeah, you know, commercial real estate has been around forever, and it has been dependent on information sharing forever. And historically, that has happened in very manual and physical ways, um, which are really important. And so there's a lot of infrastructure for that, great industry associations and networking opportunities and ways um, to share uh, information. Um, In uh, more recent years, I think that there's more and more tools to enable uh, that information sharing Um, And in many ways, that can happen uh, faster and more broadly than ever before. And because of that, I think that there are new tools for processing information. Um, And uh, it seems like in order to compete and be effective in this increasingly competitive and complex market, um, people will need to be proficient users of of tools that process that information.
1: What's been the biggest challenge in growing the company and maybe just trying to change the industry?
4: Yeah. We are supporting professionals and institutions who are working on very valuable, time-sensitive things. And because of that, the tolerance for unexpected experiences is quite low. The expectation for quality is very high. So for DealPath, our company, our product, our business, everything that we do, really boils down to two things, which are productivity and trust. Um, If we fail in either one of those, we're dead meat. Um, So that has been very important in the team that we recruit, um, the uh, environment in which we work together, the way in which we uh, communicate and service our customers, Um, and I think will always be
0: um, kind of the most important thing for us to deliver on. Um, So some of the biggest buzzy sorts of technologies are like things like machine learning and and things like blockchain, do you have any thoughts on on those technologies and whether they can be effectively applied to something like commercial real estate?
4: Yeah, Um, so those are two great examples of um, ways of doing things. And machine learning, um, I think, is one that is especially near and dear to our heart, um, where uh, as a first step, we want to be able to manually manipulate data, visualize data, get data-driven insights into how we can work more effectively. Increasingly, that should be programmatic, and using machine learning, um, we can process data, ideally structured data, um, to be able to do that more efficiently. We see enormous potential for that and believe that the long-term future of commercial real estate is in the programmatic portfolio management and transaction execution. However, it'll take a lot of work to get there. Um, I think that uh, blockchain, the other example that you gave, um, also is a way of doing things. This distributed ledger um, as opposed to a a centralized database. And interestingly, usually you start with a problem or challenge and go looking for solutions to that and find a, a new way of doing things using technology. In this case. We've started with the new way of doing things using technology in blockchain and are looking for problems to to solve or applications for it. And the good news is is that there appears to be uh, at least a few in in commercial real estate. Um, Examples of those might be uh, if you are going to create an MLS for commercial property, uh, utilizing a blockchain um, seems like it would have uh, a lot of benefits Um, if you wanted to uh, improve the efficiency of the title and escrow process. Uh, it seems like utilizing a blockchain, again, could be an efficient way of doing so um, for smart contracts. Uh, that is also probably a good application for uh, a blockchain. So, uh, you know, we think that there are opportunities there, uh, but to some degree, it is uh, a solution or way of doing things that's kind of searching for problems to solve. Do you see the industry changing the next few years, too? Yeah. Um, you know, over the past three or four years, this, you know, wave or surge of investment and development um, in software and technology for commercial real estate, there's been some new terms coined, CRE tech or prop tech, mm-hmm. um, and we actually think that those describe a time period uh, where... A few years from now, it will no longer be CRE tech, it will just be CRE, and in order to be effective and competitive, you utilize technology. Um, So CRE tech is really just a period of time as this industry becomes tech-enabled.
2: And, you know, we have been in a robust cycle for some time now. Let's keep it going. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure everyone would love to keep the party going, but it's a cyclical business. People are saying, you know, there's going to be a, a downturn at some point. Would that affect? Would volume affect your company specifically the way, you know, kind of mirroring the broader industry?
4: Yeah, we don't think so. Um, so in rising markets and, and kind of high times, heady times, um, you see more activity of people paying high prices for trophy assets. Um, in the other side of the market, uh, we start to see – more distressed transactions, um, and uh, a different kind of risk-reward profile. Um, The only thing that I think would really adversely affect DealPath is a prolonged period of of capital markets freezing. Um, And I don't think that that will be exclusive to DealPath. I think that's going to be really tough on most every business. Do you, do you do a flat fee per transaction or percentage fee or how does Yeah, it's a monthly subscription um, for uh, the use of the platform. Um, so uh, we have teams that uh, you know, might be development firms that work on one or two or three projects for a very long time period and they're very complex. Um, we also work with teams that are uh, very transactional and are closing on hundreds of deals per year. Um, so uh, from a volume perspective... Uh, deal path is is really helpful for anybody with complexity that might be a small number of transactions that are really complex or uh, a whole lot of transactions which is uh, complexity in itself uh, both uh, are, are good profiles for our platform it's so you're not dependent
1: on like a big deal and getting a percentage of that sale price it's not
4: uh, if you know people want to share a percentage of a big deal with us <laughs> we'll <laughs> happily accept <laughs> it
0: Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Business Times Structures Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Kevin Tron, at Romney SF, and at Wrights. You can also email us at Francisco at BizJournals.com. Of course, you can also follow our coverage online at Times.com or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Times. Also, a new development, check out our weekly real estate digest that comes out every Tuesday morning. It collects some of the interesting rumors, tidbits, um, development, sales, and rounds those up in, in an easy-to-read format um, for all for all your real estate news needs. Thanks again for listening, and please subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and wherever you get your podcast if you're interested in getting the latest in Bay Area real estate news straight into your earphones.